Blog Talk Radio. difficulties today as we usually have when we get into the show. Well, we have an amazing show for you today. Today we have Suzanne Obolsky of SuzanneObolskySpeaks.com. That's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-O-B-O-L-S-K-Y Speaks.com. We are so excited to have her. And then we have Quentin Walcott from Connect NYC. One of the, I'm sorry to say it with such slang, but one of the baddest brothers out there when it comes to making a difference with family and youth and really taking a look at how we can get domestic violence out of our home, our workplace, and everywhere. And he deals with all communities across the board. His organization that he runs together with a woman, which is amazing, Sally McNichol, is amazing. So without further ado, we're going to bring on Mr. Jay Logan. Mr. Logan, how are you? I'm doing very well. Everything is uh, doing great out here in California. Um, we're starting to get our cold season now, so um, we're catching up to you guys. <laughs> I know. Jay, um, we need you to really talk up louder because we can't hear you very well. Oh, great. I'm, now doing, we can well. I'm, I'm, I'm doing very well out here. Everything's fine. It's a little chilly out in California, so people aren't surfing, as it looks like on TV, but... Um, <laughs> well, it's about time. Don't you think that that's fair, Mr. Logan? Um, yes, yeah, fair, but I don't like it that much. It's freezing. <laughs> I understand, but it's not fair. You know, we have to be able to have some, you know, cities having the weather that we have right now. I mean, we're always the one here in New York, you know, uh, going through the, the four seasons while uh, San Francisco seems to have excellent weather. I know, but I thought I moved to California for excellent weather. That's why you know, I decided to come out here because I thought it was going to be nice and sunny all the time. But sunny, but it's very, very cold. I had frost on the window gale this morning. And, you know, we don't usually have that. We don't know what to do when we see frost. You know, it's like, wow, what's that? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> A lot of California uh, people out here really are really cold, and we're headed for a cold spell, by the way. It's going to get colder tonight, so we'll see what happens. Well, as we move on with the show, you know, I'm really excited, and um, one of the people that we have is Ms. Suzanne Obolsky. Uh, it's really great to have her on the show. She's really going to us, you know, the importance, the real importance. Hello? Yes. Yes. The importance, you know, what it's like to be a voiceover talent, how to get in that business, you know, the things that you may go through within that business. And I think it's very important because a lot of people don't know, like, you know, when we hear for, you know, our phone calls, when we call and they say, oh, please hold on, 
or, you know, anything of that nature. We have no idea the amazing talent behind all of the recordings that we hear, what it, what's taken, what's needed, you know, the work that goes into it. We think it's just something really simple. So we have her on, Jay. Are you ready to go right into this? Because I'm excited. I am so ready. Let's do it. Okay. Jay, we, your volume is very, very low. We need people to hear that illustrious voice of yours now. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm trying to fix the uh, problem, but uh, my bars are low. So I'm trying to figure <laughs> out why. <laughs> okay. I, um, maybe if you're speaking through a device, that might be it. We may need you to put it, the phone directly to your ear. Okay, let's try it. Let's see. Okay. And while we do that, let's bring on Miss Suzanne Obolsky. Suzanne, welcome. How are you? Hi, Gail. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. And please meet our co-host from over in San Francisco Live, Mr. Jay Logan. Hi, Jay. Hi. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Wow. Having a good good. day sitting here with you. I don't know why I said y'all. I'm not from the South. I'm from New Jersey. But <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it warm over there? Oh. oh. But, you know, I just came back from Florida yesterday, so maybe some of that Southern stuff kind of stuck on me, even though I'm back home now. <laughs> to come back from Florida. <laughs> Better to stay than to come back. But, yes, it was a lovely trip. <laughs> and, uh, that is the truth. I'm very happy to be here with you both. Well, thank you. And, you know, one of the things, you know, Suzanne, you know, we don't want you to tell too much because we want our audience to know all there is about what you do and who you are as a person, you know. So this is going to be a lot of fun, Suzanne, like I shared with you earlier. And, you know. I only do things that are fun. That's good. That's a good thing to live by. (laughs) So, Suzanne, we'd love for you to share with your audience just touch on a little bit about what you do. Okay, great. Well, I have a business which I created. It's called Suzanne Obalski Speaks, and it's fairly self-explanatory in that my job is speaking. Uh, what I do is I focus on corporate and nonprofit narration, video tutorials, web presentations, phone systems for companies that would include outgoing messages, hold messages, etc. And I also do some character work, which is a lot of fun. Uh, but that's more of a niche market, and, and most of it is in, in L.A. So my bread and butter is the corporate and nonprofit narration. Um, incidentally, about 80% of voiceover work is narration. People think it's all the glamorous stuff, the commercials and the movies, uh, but actually the, the meat and potatoes is in the narration, so that's where I am. Oh, wow. And I've been doing that for about, yeah, for about five years. I'm really enjoying it. I have a studio here in my home. And uh, the business has really changed. You know, years ago, you used to have to go on all these casting calls. Now, uh, a primary portion of auditions are done from your home over, you know, you, you record it and basically you send the client either an MP3 or, well, or now, now, any WAV file, any types of files that they want, and, and you're all set. Well, Suzanne, we don't want you to tell too much because if you let too much okay. of the really good stuff out, then we can't, you know, we can't share the audience at the end. So we want to, we want to leave them a little. Yeah, exactly. Because this is really something a lot of people are really interested in and have great voices, and they don't even know where to get started. So I know Jay has some questions for you. Jay, you're the man. Go right ahead. Great. Okay, Suzanne, I wanted to know how did you know you had the talent to do this? And what age did you start? Well, 
I was kind of walking around with fake microphones since I was probably about five years old. So I figured, you know, that that sort of led me in the right direction. I've actually been in finance for over 20 years, so I've done a ton of financial, complicated financial presentations over my years in finance. And I kind of blended that with my ability and my, I guess, my, uh, my, my born nature of being a ham and also being in a lot of, of productions over the years. I was also in a band uh, as a singer for many years. So I kind of morphed those two things and decided that voiceover was the way to go. Now, I had to first discover if I was any good at it. Um, so I did what everyone should do. You know, I took classes and branded myself. I took more classes. Every time, as you guys know, every time you think you know everything, then you're sunk. So it's always about constantly learning, learning from people and, and imparting also imparting what you've learned to others. Wow. Wow. Um, in, in your journey as a voiceover specialist, what have you found important now that you didn't know in the beginning of this industry that you started? Um, I think probably the most important thing, just technically, is to know where your strengths lie. A lot of times ah. people come into voiceover and they say, I want to do this or I want to do that. And it's not, it sounds funny, it's not really about what you want. It's about where your talents lie. So I would want to do a bunch of other things probably, but I know when I'm auditioning that the most natural place for my voice is in corporate and nonprofit, that type of narration. So the the... You know, most probable way for me to get work is to do what I'm best at. I know that sounds obvious, but a lot of people don't get there for a while. Um, so that's really where it's the best. And the goofy side of me lets me do the, the character stuff as well, um, and that's super fun. Um, you know, I, I've actually invited a couple of my character friends here with me in case, you know, if they get a chance to talk to you later. Um, we have, but it's super we have fun. Some questions. We, we have some questions okay. about this. We, we, don't want, we don't want you to give that away too fast. But I wanted to inject this in there real fast. Now, what do you do on a day when you wake up and your voice is not at full health? What, and this is your job. I'm just curious, what do you do? You know, you're a singer and you're a voiceover talent. How do you take care of this beautiful instrument that you have in this talent? Um, thank you for that question. Well, it's tough sometimes because your voice doesn't always agree with what you want to do. So you have to really take care of your voice when you're not using it for work just like you do in any other industry. You know, you have to watch if you smoke, you have to quit smoking, you have to watch drinking, you have to, you know, not eat foods that are going to aggravate you, like dairy products and things like that. It's always a matter of you thinking through what you need to do for the next project. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. If your voice isn't there, you really you can't do the project. So it's more about a commitment to your overall health that's really going to help you. Ah. Wow, that's really interesting. That's a good theme. That's a good theme for for everyone, right? (laughs) And I'm not perfect. No, I've 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 not perfect. I've I've failed in that regard, and I've had a gruff voice due to you know my own activities. I had a couple of glasses of wine or whatever, and just don't sound right the next day. And that's my own fault. And I just have to learn from those lessons. But in general, I know what I'm supposed to do. It's a matter of applying it. Um, and that's, right. those are the, kind of the right steps that you can take, just basically taking care of yourself, which will help you, obviously, in a million other ways as well. But, but with the voice, it's almost like the voice knows what your body's doing. You, you really can't fake it when it comes well, to the voice. Well, you know, uh, given that what you just said about not faking it, is there a lot of people in this business, and does that make it harder to gain employment? Yes, there are a ton of people in this this business. Because I call myself a voiceover artist, 
but I'm really a voice actor. So to answer that question, are there very many actors in New York City? <laughs> yes, I would say so. And a lot of times, you know, you're under heavy, heavy competition. Right now I'm non-union, which means there's certain jobs that I take. Most of my stuff is non-union. So my perspective is I don't want to compete against the Christine Lotties and the Seal Awards of the world. Not that I'm not confident in my abilities, but, you know, those voices are very loved voices throughout the country and beyond. I'm going to have much more uh, probability in going up against, you know, an, an every, every woman, every man than I would those folks. So I choose to be non-union, and that gives me a certain set of auditions that I can audition for and certain ones that I can't. And that's just what I've chosen for myself. So, yes, there's a ton, a ton of competition. So you always have to, you know, hone your craft. You can't, you know, rest on your laurels. If you get a lot of big jobs, you can't, you know, just, just wait for the rest of them to come in. You have to figure out, you know, how to, how to make your own business and figure out new ways of doing things, especially now with social media and everything. Different forms of communication are always being born. So you kind of have to be on the edge of, of what those are and figure out, you know, how, how it can work for you. Suzanne, what, what does it take to get started as a voiceover talent? I think to get started, you just need the mindset. You need to decide, this is what I want to do. And then what I would do, which is what I already have done, is just go on the Internet and do some searches. Um, I have a studio, and they'll be happy that I'm mentioning them. I have a studio that I love. They're called Edge Studio. They're based in, in the Times Square area. And I did all my training there. But you can, you know, look, you know, do your own Internet searches and figure out what, what's right for you. But the reason I like them is because they have a bunch of different types of coaches that are still working in industry. So, you know, I learned from my character demo from a, a character guy. He does cartoons. He does, you know, he works with Marvel. He does a, a ton of different stuff in that arena. With, for my narration commercial demo, I worked with a woman who does commercials constantly. Um, so I think you really need to work with someone who's specific to the type of voiceover that you want to do. You can't just go and take voiceover classes in general. You really have to decide, what am I good at? And they'll help, you, they'll help you figure that out. And then you have to work with people that are specific to that niche in the industry, not just in the, in the general sense. Wow, that's interesting. You know, um, one of the things I would like to know is, you know, does music, um, does music ever come into play with any of the voiceovers? Well, well, it does, but most of that is um, post-production. So basically right now, and this will change in the future, but right now I provide the voice and I do editing with, my, with Pro Tools, which is the system that I use here. But when it comes to music, those tracks are laid after I give my voice. So one can do that, um, and I, I you know, encourage anyone to train to do that, but I'm more focused on the, on the, vo- on the voice side, on the narration side of things and I let someone else do what they do best, which is lay the music tracks on after I'm finished. Mm-hmm. But hopefully in the future wow. that will change, but that's just what I've decided to focus on. Well, Jay, I'm, oh, I'm going to let you ask it. Go ahead. Yeah, I have a, very, I have a question, and this is, this is regarding something, Gail, that she said earlier about being union. And I was wondering, like, for us, voiceover is concerned. Do you do a lot of national things for, like, let's say for Ford, or do you, is it hard to get these types of jobs, like you're doing national, corporate, national stuff? Is that something that you do also? And then how hard is it to acquire those jobs? How hard is it? Um, it's quite difficult, actually, and most of those are for union. 
I would definitely say most. I can't give you an exact percentage, but most of those are union jobs. Um, so I focus more on the regionals. You know, I'll do a small commercial in San Antonio. I'll do one out in Sacramento, things like that, that are in the local you know, cable or local TV market. Um, okay. Those I have more success with. Uh, the others, as I said, I just I've chosen for myself. I don't want to go against Matt Damon. You know what I mean? I don't want to go okay. against you know Morgan uh, Freeman for the voiceover. <laughs> right. So, you know, you know. I just wonder. So it's, 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 it's different levels to this business. So basically, what you're saying there is, yeah. like you have to be a chosen, almost like a chosen one. Like if you're going to represent Coca-Cola and you're going to do all the voiceover right. service for Coke. Is that something that the corporate people they usually choose these people, or do they do they just you can't just walk into that arena? No. Well, what happens is it's different, you know, depending on the company. A lot of companies either have in-house marketing where they take care of the voiceover casting, and then some people use some sort of a consultant to do that for them. Um, So it's not the kind of thing that usually you could typically, you know, call up investor relations at Coca-Cola, get the number of the person and say, hi, do you want me as your voiceover? It's kind of more complicated than that. Um, But that being said, though, I always encourage, you know, wherever you go to market, talk to people see what kind of businesses they have, you know, what they're looking for, what things they're lacking in that regard, and maybe you might be able to provide. I mean, as an example, um, I always find it funny when I call a company that, in my mind, is well-regarded and is well-regarded by me, and the person who's on the, on the voicemail sounds terrible. For instance, I called an insurance company lately, well, recently. I won't say who it was, but it was kind of like this, you know, like uh, – your call is very important to us. If you remember, oh. press one. Provider, press two. <laughs> and to me, uh, I don't really feel like you're, you know, really focused on who I am, and I don't get a warm, fuzzy feeling about my health care right. after I hear that. <laughs> right. So in those cases, there are definitely opportunities out there, and, you, and it makes a big difference. You know how sometimes we think of a company in a great way. We go to their website, it's terrible, and we say, wait a second, you kind of second guess your relationship with the company based on these touch points. So it's really important, you know, to have a voice that is going to really relay the type of message that you want your audience to hear. Wow. Wow. You know, um, one of the things I'd like to know is, you know, now don't laugh, Suzanne, okay? (laughs) But I'd love to know what type of voiceovers do you do and what is your favorite? Like your favorite funniest one you've ever done? Um, well, you know what? There was one. I, I did a, did a couple for this company, but there's a an organization, and I use the the word lightly, uh, loosely. It's called ComedyCalls.com, where they're basically made up phone calls, and you call different people with different messages. But it's really like for a friend or for your cousin for his fiftieth birthday, things like that. So, so I pretended to be um, a, a corporate person, and then at the end I reveal that it's just a joke. And the, the script was absolutely <laughs> ridiculous, but it was kind of fun to do. So that sort of thing is fun. And as I said, the character stuff is fun, even though it's not as frequently done. But I do, you know, I do feel good about the voices, and I do. It's kind of it's fun. It's like having a bunch of different people in your head at once. That makes me kind of sound crazy, I guess. That's not what I wanted to relay. Um, <laughs> um, it's nice to have a lot of different voices, basically. Wow. Like, um, hi, Gail. I really, really like your show. Listen, Giz, it makes me feel good. 
You don't even know Gail. You don't never even talked to her before. Yes, I have. No, you haven't. Yes, I have. She's my friend. Fine. You think she'll be my friend too? Sure. She's really nice. And that's a sort of a sampling of the dialogue that goes what? on in my head on a daily basis. <laughs> that's, that's, that's incredible. That was cool. That was really cool. Now, guys, I don't usually say it like that, but that was cool. <laughs> That was cool. I, well, Jay, I know you have a question. Okay, I have now you have two new friends on the line. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, let me be the goofy person that I really am, you know, use it as an excuse, <laughs> and I say that I'm working, but I get to be goofy like that. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I like that. That's a wonderful That's job. Fun, you know? That voice made me feel yeah. happy. I, I was like, like now, what advice? What, Susan, what advice would you give me or people coming into this business? Is this something I can make a living at? I mean, is this something I can... I mean, or should I just go ahead and, you know, try to be a lawyer or a doctor or something, or something that will, you know, help you? Well, I guess, you know, it's similar to being a, a lawyer and a doctor only in this one way, in that it takes years to ramp up a business, a full-time business, and be successful. So what I would suggest is don't blast out of the gate thinking that you're going to, you know, in your first year you're going to make 200 grand. Like, that's not the way it works. Like, you I don't just get to have to Buffer, persevere. I'm sorry. In other words, Michael Buffer, he says, he says, get re- let's get ready to rumble, and he makes ten thousand dollars and say, let's get ready to rumble. I'm not gonna, don't blast exactly, out there, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, you just have to believe in yourself, and I, and again, figure out what niche is is your niche. You know, just because okay. you want to do car commercials doesn't mean you have the right voice for it. Maybe your voice is better for medical narration. You know, who knows. So it's just a matter of discovering that. And then also, just like with anything else, you have, to, you have to brand yourself. You have to differentiate yourself from everyone else. Why is your voice different? And why, is your, why are you different? You know, a lot of times we know when it comes down to products, all things being equal, you know, toothpaste A and toothpaste B, if they're all things mm-hmm. being equal, why is it that we buy one over the other? It's usually not really having to do with the product sometimes. Maybe it's the marketing. Maybe it's a really cute commercial that we saw. Maybe, who knows? There are different types of touch points. Um, but in that regard, you just kind of you have to figure out what you're good at. You need, you need coaches to tell you, you know, hey, buddy, this isn't for you, or hey, you sound really good there. Let's explore this. And then you've just got to keep going to classes. I mean, just like with, with any other form of, of vocation, it's all about study, um, I take my voiceover work very academically, so especially if I'm not doing something that I, I'm familiar with. For instance, I have a client um, actually in Belgium. It's uh, an engineering company, and I do um, quite lengthy and arduous uh, engineering PowerPoint presentations for them. And most of the time, I have no idea what it says. It's almost like a foreign language. So I have to go and study it. Not that I need an engineering degree, but I have to sound credible. I have to sound like I know what I'm talking about. I have to work on intonation, pace, and all those types of things. So it's not the kind of thing that's going to happen overnight. But once you start doing it and you, there's a comfort level there with how to read copy and where to breathe, where not to breathe, where to speed up, slow down, all that stuff comes naturally just like anything else that you're studying hard at and that you're feeling passionate about. So, so my, 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 uh, my other next question, and this is a really good question, Mike. So when you go to work, how many voiceovers do you do a day, and when does the fastidious set? I mean, that's a lot of work because you've got to talk, and now you've got to use your voice to make money. Plus, you've got to talk to people. Plus, you've got to talk to your family and all your friends. So, how, what is, right. what is, I know you get tired. 
So at night, uh, loud bars are a no-no for a voiceover artist. I just uh, when I'm at a loud bar, I just listen and I don't speak. Um, you know what? It depends. It's acting. So some days I'm not. I don't have any jobs. It's it's an acting business, and sometimes I have some. So you just have to. You know, when I was in finance, I had a similar flow to my work, working on commission all the time. You know, sometimes there are some ups, then there are some downs, and some great ups, then things are kind of status quo. It's a, it's a similar business to that. So you kind of just have to be the type of person that can deal with that pace. Some people are very rigid in their scheduling, and they like, and there's nothing wrong with that. They like to work at a certain pace, you know, and be at the desk at this time and leave the desk at this time. This is not the kind of business for those type of people because you have to be flexible. You have to be agile. You have to not be depressed when you don't have work. And you have to, you know, be able to give people work in a timely fashion and always keep it professional and always keep your work crisp and always realize that you have something more to learn because I find a lot of times in various businesses, people think, oh, I'm at the top. I don't need to learn anything else. People can learn from me. And once you say that, once you think that way, you're dead in the water. Aha. So, um, y'all have one technical question. You don't have to get technical. Now, you, you, okay, okay, now, you Jay, that's not fair. We're going to fight here over Suzanne, okay? <laughs> that's, not, that's not fair, sir. Please, I've no fighting over me. In here. I've got to get my <laughs> question in here, Jay. Logan. Okay, you go, go ahead. Over I me. Okay, I'll, I'll wait. Ladies first. You gotta wait, Jade. It's not fair. I gotta ask Suzanne. Fine. You can't have all okay. yourself. Can't Jay, we all okay. just get along? <laughs> have you have you done characters such as Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck? Well, no one. You know, the great, you know, Mel Blanc. No one really can can go there. I mean, I do little things to my friends. Not in specifically in that voice, but I, I hate to admit, often quote Bugs Bunny, but no, I don't. <laughs> Makes me sound very profound, I know. Um, would I throw a lighted match and if my friend Muggsy were encased therein? I always come up with huh. the best lines of Bugs Bunny, and whenever there's a serious moment, I throw one out. But no, I don't do stuff like that. I mean, I would love to do stuff like that in the future. I just don't have a signature <laughs> character that you would have heard of, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> yeah. That's just funny. Well, Jay, Jay, I know we have time for one more question. And so, actually, two, because I get to ask a question, too. (laughs) Well, this this question is one of the throwing questions about the the Pro Tools and the technical stuff she does in the studio. And I was wondering that when you do voiceovers, does everybody have to know about Pro Tools or GarageBand or Cubase or these programs that you're using? Or do you need to have a home studio nowadays to be able to uh, start? I would say yes, you really need a home studio. I mean, you could get lucky and get a job or two. And maybe if you're very active in the commercial space and you you actually are going to casting calls, you don't need it. But pretty much in the narration world, which I said is 80% of voiceover, you're going to need a home studio. And it doesn't mean it has to be fancy. You could have a little mic and, you know, set up. There's some booths where, you know, you put your head in and there's almost like a tablecloth on top of your head. The listener doesn't know that, but so there are things, you know, with, as with everything, there's a scale of how much you want to pay. Um, you know, I have, I have a good mic, and I, have, I use Pro Tools, but I use Pro Tools 8. Now it's up to Pro Tools 11. Because I'm not doing music and I'm not laying thick tracks and effects on there, I don't really need anything right now more than Pro Tools 8. And when I speak to my clients, they say, wow, your studio sounds fantastic. It's in my apartment in a big closet, you know. So it's almost like the Wizard of Oz, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You work in all that magic in a small space. 
and you don't have to spend oh. a ton of money to do it. Wow. What type of request do you get? Uh, what type of voice, voice request do you get? That's my last question. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. What type of request do you get when for voiceovers? Like, um, name, name, name some of the jobs that the request people have you it's do. It's really right? a host of stuff. Um, I work with a company called Body Elastics, which is a fitness company. I've done videos on Sears Fit Studio. I did a couple of uh, children's-related stuff. Uh, there's a book series called I Wonder Why, which I narrated their video on their website. Um, I do um, work with a data storage company named Avere Systems. Uh, again, the, the one engineering company I mentioned in Belgium, they're called LMS Interna- International, one of the biggest engineering firms in Europe. Um, so it's a, it, you know, it runs the gamut. Educational videos, for well, I did one for Global School of Silicon Valley out west, an environmental video called H2U. So it's really, you know, it, it runs the gamut. There's nothing within narration that I could say I do mostly. And, of course, I do finance because I've, I have the, uh, the experience in finance. Um, sometimes I'm, I'm narrating some type of t- tutorial on mutual funds or things like that. Um, but, you know, again, I treat everything academically, and, you know, I'm very um, focused on how to make this sound the best. Sometimes I just pretend to be a listener. I'm a prospective listener. Does this sound authentic? Does this sound ridiculous? Does this sound comical when it's not supposed to be? I have to kind of sit on the other side of my voice as a prospective listener and make sure it sounds like something that I would be proud of. Wow. Wow. Well, Suzanne, our last question to you is, what is a... a, um, what is a charity or cause that's very you're passionate about? Um, I definitely have to say, um, since uh, my mom passed away of breast cancer last year, and you know that was a really tough loss for me. And I've been walking in the Making Strides Against Breast Cancer American Cancer Society walk, um, and I'm already you know set up to do the same next year. So, you know, what it's taught me is that. When, when tragic things happen, you know, the most important things, at least to me, are family, friends, and, and making a difference in people's lives, helping people that need your help, because a lot of people helped me when I needed help. And, you know, it's just an important cycle of life, I think. So I want to make sure that everything I do in my life is a reflection of that value. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it. Suzanne, thank you for being with us. Oh, thanks yes. for having me. I appreciate it. It's been fun <laughs> hanging out with you two. We should do Thank it again so sometime. Much. Oh, and we should sure. come back next year. <laughs> I'll be back next year. Yes, thank that's you. Not, we would love to have you. That's, Definitely. that's not too long thank now. You've you got like a couple of weeks here. It's not. <laughs> I know. It's like three and a half weeks from now or something, four weeks right. from now. We'll see you soon. <laughs> but, yeah, anytime I'm available to chat with you guys. You have good energy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, and that's very kind of you to say. Well, we look forward, and everyone, um, can you tell them where they can find out more about you, Suzanne? Uh, yes. Well, my website is, but everyone needs a pen, is www.suzanne, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E, Obolsky, O-B-O-L-S-K-Y, speaks.com. There you'll find work samples and demos, all that kind of fun stuff. And there's also a portion at the bottom right where you can send me an email. So I'm, I'm happy to help anybody who has any questions about voiceover. Uh, if I can help anyone in any way, I'm happy to do that. So uh, drop me a line. We sure will. And thank you again. Thanks so much. Take care, you two. You too. Thank you.
Bye-bye. Well, you know who we have coming on. Yes, thank you so much. You know who we have coming on next, Mr. J? Yes. I I was so excited to have uh, Suzanne on, and I can't wait. Well, the person that we have coming on next is Mr. Quentin Walcott. So this is, this is personal for me, Jay. This is very personal for me. This gentleman is amazing. Um, he works with Connect NYC. Um, he does a lot of work in domestic violence, uh, and he does a lot of work with youth. I mean, he has, he's just recently been given an award at the U- United Nations for Women um, for his, the work that he does in community. And what I love about this brother is he is so real. He is so real, so down to earth, and it is also his birthday today. Wow. So, Jay, we must say happy birthday to him. So, and, you know, and you know, one other thing I want to say before I bring on this gentleman is that the work he does includes all communities, not just one. He has a very unique approach to domestic violence and creating partnership between men and women. We honored him um, through some people I worked with back in 2009, and I just feel very privileged to know someone like him and the work he does. We often tell people, oh, how great people are, but this guy really walks the walks and talks the talks, and he's just a real brother, and I, and I really like that about him. So without further ado, we're going to bring on Mr. Walcott. Hello, Quentin. How are you? How you doing, Gail? How's, er- how's everyone? Okay. Quentin, I'd like you to meet Jay Logan, uh, the co-host here, sir. How you doing, Jay? I'm doing great, Quentin. Pleasure to have you on the great. show. Likewise. Thank you. Well, Thank you, know, you. Thanks for having me again. Well, we're quite excited. But, you know, before we go on, Quentin, happy birthday to you. Happy <laughs> birthday to you. Happy birthday. Now, I can't sing, but, you know, we just wanted to let you know. We're letting everyone know today is Quentin's birthday, so a shout-out to right. Quentin. Uh, thank so. you very much. I really appreciate that. I guess the yes, word got out. Yes, and we know you're 18. <laughs> <laughs> once again, once again. <laughs> we know you're 18, so, you know, that's, that's all anyone needs to know, Quentin. So, Quentin, on this show, we have a lot of fun even though this is right. a very serious topic, and um, Jay and I could not wait, you know, to talk with both you and Suzanne today, because this is something that's very close to our heart, okay? Um, you know, um, it's something that, you know, we know so many people who have been, I, I hate the word survivor and victim, so I'll, I'll just say who have experienced it. Okay. You know, so... We, you know, we want to, but we will have fun with you. We hope you're okay with that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Got to have fun. Okay. So, Quentin, if you don't mind, we're going to go right into, you know, some of the questions with you. You know, um, you know, you've been connecting people with one another for quite some time through nonviolent methods with your work. And I, and, and what we want to ask you, Quentin, Quentin, is before you get into this. We have a series of questions, so try not to tell too much because, you know, we, know we, we, we all know we can get into it here. We have a series no problem, of questions no that people can really get the full amount of what you do, okay, and, and, and what your organization that you work together with your team does, you know. And um, so if you can answer the questions, try not to give too much because Jay and I, really we're, we're really ready to get into it with you on this one. So we'll start okay. out by saying you've been connecting with people for quite some time through nonviolent methods with your work. How did you get started in making a difference with families this way? Well, for me, um, I was actually, you know, 
you know, working to kind of pay off my my last semester of um, undergrad, and I started working for, you know, a community-based organization in South Jamaica, Queens. And, um, I, you know, I was just working, just trying to make pay some bills and what have you, so I really had no intention of really doing this work. Uh, I said I'll do this for about two months, and then, you know, 18 years later, here I am. But um, I was working with young people who were, um, you know, having some challenges around their behavior, you know, in school and their families and in the community. And, um, you know, for some reason I had a knack for working with young people. And then, you know, it just turned out that, um, you know, I would work with them, you know, like in a clinical setting for about nine to 12 weeks. But one thing that I found interesting was that, you know, these young these young people, you know, uh, kept coming back. And I was, like, wondering why they kept coming back. So I just started asking different questions, and it turned out that many of these young people um, were experiencing um, domestic violence in the household, so they were child witnesses of violence. And as a result of that, what they were experiencing in the home, they were making, you know, they were acting out in school or acting out in the community and making poor choices around, um, you know, how they navigate the day and, you know, who they associate themselves with and, and what have you. So it was really kind of related, you know, it's like a, intersecting issues. So the fact that they were child witnesses to violence at home, they made, you know, they got involved with guns and gang violence and other forms, you know, community violence as a result of domestic violence as the root issue that they were experiencing. And no one was really asking that question about what's happening at home and what help can we give these young people. So it was kind of like, um, and it kind of changed my, you know, ultimately working with young people really changed my, my path in terms of the work I wanted to do. So I kind of moved away from law and just, you know, really wanted to figure out how can I really help young people in a real effective and creative way. Well, you know, given you started this process with youth, what were some of the things that they shared with you, you know, without giving you guys personal business, what were some of the things they shared with you that was going on in the home with domestic violence? I mean, you know, a lot of it is, you know, the typically when you think about domestic violence, people think about physical violence. So, yes, some of it was um, physical violence, sexual violence, but then it was also, you know, a lot of the other forms of violence that are really, really more primary when you think about domestic violence. The physical, you can see it, it's tangible, you can see the black eye, what have you. But a lot of it was the, you know, the psychological abuse, it was uh, mental, you know, abuse and, you know, verbal, you know, a lot of verbal um you know, taunting and um, really breaking down someone's self-esteem through verbal abuse and uh, financial issues. You know, so it was a lot of, and a lot of it was isolation. Um, you know, so it, it was a lot of all these different forms and tactics that are used to typically, um, you know, you know, gain or maintain power control over someone you're intimate in a relationship with. And then, you know, young people, many times where there's domestic violence, there's also, you know, child abuse and other forms of violence in, in, in play because it's not just like one isolated issue. So um, there was many forms of violence, you know, taking shape and taking form. So they witnessed all of that. And, you know, children are sponges. So, you know, children who witness violence will pick up, you know, what's effective, right? Because domestic violence, one of the things about it is that, you know, it's about power control and using different forms of abuse to do that. So children would pick up, you know, these uh, abusive ways and these cycles of violence will continue with another generation. So, um, you know, it was really important, that, you know, you know, really working with the young people and checking in with them because a lot of times in the dynamic of domestic violence, they're often forgotten. So it's either about the, you know, the victim survivor or the perpetrator of violence. 
and many times it's just about the you know the, the survivor and the onus and the responsibility to being safe is on her and keeping the children safe. So there's a lot of onus and responsibility for someone who's being abused and the ability to parent is being undermined. So it, it you know it takes shape and form in multiple ways of how it would impact not just the child but also the person who's being abused and also you know the lack of effort to really engage um, the perpetrator who typically is uh, you know a man in terms of the uh, statistics that are used and that we have available to us in terms of, you know, 90% of the cases that are reported are when men are abusing women and girls. And, you know, men can be abused as well, but the statistics that we have is really around that. And most domestic violence or intimate partner violence goes unreported. So there's just so many dynamics that are uh, connected to this, so it's important to really, you know, check in with children, see what's going on with them so we can interrupt these cycles so that they don't repeat that in there teen relationships or the sibling relationships or it shows up in somewhere else in their in their um day to day lives. Well you know what I want what I really want to hone in on, you know, um and Jay, I think you both you and I both know we have a script but I think we know we're gonna go off script, don't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is serious. Um I I I get the you know, the the stuff that goes behind but I'd love to know something that was said to you when you began this, okay? Because that's really what I want to get to, like you know, giving you start, you know, started the process with you. What were some of the things that they said to you that said, you know, Quentin, you better go check this out at home, even you know, even more so. Um, you know, for me, one of my mentors in this in this work was Dr. John Aponte, and he was um, someone who had done had done this work with men and engaging men. So I mean, one one thing with me, it wasn't necessarily at home per se, but when I first started doing this work, you know, a lot of it was really around how can we, and rightfully so, protect and keep survivors safe. But for me, it was kind of like, you know, this Band-Aid approach, you know. We're dealing with um, a person after the violence has happened. How can we look at who's doing the abuse? So really going a step before where people usually start around domestic violence with the victim surviving. Let's look at why does, you know, why does that person batter and abuse rather than saying, you know, why does she stay, why does she put up with this, why does she endanger our children, if we change the lens and really look at where it starts. So for me, it was really around, you know, what is it about men that um, really uh, attitudes and belief systems. Um, so for me, it was like always examining that in the home, you know, the men in my family, uh, men in my household, men in my community. What was it that was that I was being socialized around, that they were being socialized around and making different choices around being abusive or viewing women as objects or property. So for me, it was really more of that, like what is it, how do I, what are my notions of manhood and what is the behavior of a man and how is that connected to, you know, women and and to other men in terms of masculinity and and what have you. Wow. Well, Jay, I know you had a question for Quentin. Yeah, Quentin, um, it's a pleasure to have you on the show because I just feel that you do the work that helps the communities and build back strong villages, and we need people like you. So it's an honor to just even talk to you, and I'm so happy that you're on our show. I just wanted to say that. Um, One of the questions was, uh, once the young people have shared with you what was going on in their home, how did you connect with their parents to work with their parents? Well, I mean, I mean, that's that's the trick, you know. Um, so for me, you know, when I was working specifically with young people, I became like a conduit, you know. I became like the voice because you know children are like the voice of the voiceless. So I became um, 
someone that they can, who wasn't a parent, who wasn't a teacher, um, who they can really, you know, disclose to, feel comfortable with. Um, so, um, so you know, if they had challenges around school, it wasn't necessarily that they weren't smart or they couldn't um, do the work. They were being distracted. You know, they were traumatized by the experiences at home or in the community. So for me, it was really like, you know, how do you, because one, one thing that's really commonplace even with domestic violence or not, you know, children and parents being able to communicate. So one, one of the important things was really setting a place and a tone, safe place for, you know, children to be heard and to ask them questions. Because, you know, many times, even the work I do now with uh, young people and even men, it's like, you know, you ask them, how are you doing? And they're like, what do you mean? You know, they're not even used to, used to being, being asked how do they feel, what's going on with them. They're, they're waiting to be spoke at, not rather spoke to, and, and, you know, having a dialogue. So a lot of it was just really trying to create these safe spaces and really giving, you know, the young people an opportunity to hear what's happening for them, what's happening at home. Do they understand what's happening at home? Can they explain that? And that's the thing. You know, a lot of, a lot of children are, you know, really raising themselves in, you know, in domestic violence situations because um, they don't really can't go to any either of the parents and they don't understand what's really happening. They want to protect mom, they identify with dad, or they identify with what works. So there's a lot going on for young people. So for me, it was really like, you know, you can see what's happening with an adult through their children, and you can see what's happening with children through the adults. So it was really just like making connections, thinking about the work critically, asking certain questions, and really getting not just this one-size-fits-all approach to helping people and families and youth, but really, you know, tailoring it to what are the specific needs, you know, explaining things to young people and to adults, right? Now, what are, how does your behavior impact your child or even thinking about your child? Because you think you just you close the door and then the parents kind of, you know, yell and scream and, you know, abuse is happening. And you think that the child is not peeking through that keyhole or opening that door or not even their imaginations are just running wild because they're children. And it's seeing, you know, monsters on the other side of the door or the wall. So it's really about checking in with them. And, and you know, because what we tend to do is we forget that and they just repeat the negative behavior that's most consistent in their lives when they become, you know, older and teens and teen dating violence happens. And then they get into these relationships and they just fall into what they saw the adults in their lives. It could be either as a someone who's abusive or someone being abused and seeing that as normalized behavior when it's not. It's unhealthy behavior. Wow. Well, you know, when, when you deal with connecting with an abusive situation, what are some of the tools you share with the people who are doing the abuse to release their anger in other ways in addition to counseling? I'll say, I'm sorry, repeat that again? When you're dealing with an abusive situation, right, and, yeah. you know, you're counseling someone who is the person who's, you know, creating the abuse, Okay. What is some of the tools you give them, Quentin, to release their anger in addition to the counseling that they may receive? Well, I mean, it's, it's there's many, many different modalities that you can use. What I like to really, you know, I, I do some individual, but I think the most impactful way of dealing with men who are abusive is to really do like a group process and group dynamics. So, you know, it's really going through a, a group Yeah, did we lose? Yeah, did we lose you, Quinta? I'm here. Oh, okay. We thought we were, uh, lost you there for a second. 
So you said it was basically okay. going to a group. So I, so I think the most, import, the, the most important thing is to really, despite how violent they may be or you think they may be, is to really give them space to talk, right? Because, you know, of course there's going to be a lot of denial, minimization, and blame, and she made me do it. But you really got to give them an opportunity to talk so you can find entry points and really have a conversation of really transforming the attitudes and behavior um, that can really lead to, um, you know, making decisions around really choosing not to be violent in any relationship. And then giving, you know, and then we also also talk about how do you, how do you deal, how do you speak, how do you communicate, how do you negotiate, um, all those typical things of any relationship should have, but really not using and examining, you know, the power of control and where that's coming from and then tactics that are being used. Because a lot of times people think, well, I don't hit her, but, you know, I control where she goes, I control how much money she has, uh, if she could go to church or not, uh, all those different things. So it shows up in many different ways. So it's really about, you know, just hearing no matter what you may be hearing, giving them a space and opportunity to tell their, their side of the story, right? Because that gives you um, buy-in and they, they begin to trust you around um, really, you know, giving them those tools. Because you can give somebody tools, and if they really are not in agreement with it or they don't have any buy-in, they won't apply them or use them, the different techniques we may, you know, develop. And it's not a one-size-fits-all again. So, you know, for every individual, there's certain things that, key things that, you know, a group of men you can give, but, like, in terms of, you know, abuse is very different in every situation, you know. Um, so it's really around tailoring around, what is particularly happening with this person. But the ultimate thing is changing how do you view women and girls and other men who you don't feel may be as masculine as you are or um, someone that, you know, you can pick on a bully. So it's really around changing those attitudes and then behavior will change as a result, hopefully. And it's really about choices, okay. you know, because um, for the most part, you know, most men are not abusive, right? But the, the conditions exist because we live in a society where, um, you know, there's male privilege, there's racial privilege, all these different things that really give you um, a certain level of entitlement or access to thinking that, you know, it's okay for you to, to do this way. And if, you know, and if the systems aren't in play to really hold abusive men accountable, in particular abusive men, um, it says that it's okay that you can treat, you know, your partner that way, you know, your wife, your girlfriend that way because, the, you know, things don't come into play to say, you know, that's incorrect. We don't do those things like that. So that's why for us to connect and, you know, Sally and I as co-executive directors and sharing leadership, what we found to be effective is this idea of engaging men and boys to, one, change the attitudes and belief systems, but also to keep women and children Quentin, safe. Quentin, we don't want you to tell that part because we've got questions for okay. you at the end about right. that one. Sure. Okay. Sure. All right, Jay, I know you had some questions. I'm going to give you the floor because I know you're ready to get in there. Yeah, I, Quentin, I'm very interested. I want to know, what are the types of personalities you have encountered in people who have been at the effect of the abuse? I'm sorry, repeat the last part of the question. I, I want to know, what are the personalities that you have encountered in people who have been at the effect of the abuse? Well, you know, and, and, that, and that's, and that's the thing, too. You know, early on in my work, you know, and I get this question almost every single day, what are some of the signs? What are the personalities? But the reality is that, you know, like domestic violence doesn't discriminate in terms of the abuser, uh, in terms of the victim survivor, it doesn't discriminate in terms of the abuser. So it's not like one prototypical personality. It could be, it could be a cop, it could be a judge, it could be a lawyer, it could be a pastor, 
It could be someone, upstanding person in your community. Um, so it's not like one stereotypical type. It's really about, you know, the environment, again, going, looking at sexism and racism and classism. All those different things, you know, afford you certain privileges and access and entitlements um, that help, that make it, you know, easier for you to navigate, you know, that, that thinking, that behavior, that abusive behavior. So it's really, you know, um, and the potential of it exists, you know, but people making different choices and have different support networks that help them decide not to be abusive in a situation and, you know, and figure out, you know, negotiate. You know, we, we, we tend to be harder on the people that we love or the people that we feel that we supposed to control in our household or in relationships or in families than we do to, the, you know, the common person in the street. So we've got to really figure out, you know, why are we targeting, you know, our um, anger and abuse towards an intimate partner because there's a certain level of ownership that's connected to it, you know, um, and this is what makes it domestic violence rather than an anger management issue. And that's all I really want to be clear on that because I know we, we toss around anger a lot, but it's really domestic violence is a targeted, specific person that you're looking at that's saying, I'm going to abuse this person and I'm going to get this benefit from it. Because uh, you're not abusing the cop when the cop comes. You're not abusing your boss, but you're abusing right. the person that you feel you have power over. So it really, it's really important to really make that distinction that it's not an anger management issue because you can certainly manage your anger when there's a consequence to you. But if you feel that you're in a position where you've created a dynamic where you're in a position of power and someone is uh, fearful of you and you exert your power in that situation, so it's really specific around it. Got it. Well, you know, Quentin, one of the things I, I have a question um, um, well, Jay, do you have any more questions? Because I know that we have a script, but I, I know you've got something that you want to ask. So um, let's do the boys um, and the girls in a few seconds. But did you have anything else you wanted to ask, Jay? Well, yeah, I wanted to get around to how the violence affects other members of the family. Like, you have the victim, but everybody else in the family is victimized. And I want Clinton to touch on that. Um, how, what your experience was that where... A woman is being victimized, but she has a son or a daughter or a mother, and they all are afraid of all character. Can you talk a little bit oh. about that? Oh, I'm sorry, Jay. You're breaking up. I couldn't hear that. Oh, I wanted to talk about how domestic violence affects other members of the family and, and, and the, the home. Could you talk about how it affects the children and family? Okay. Everybody's afraid of, afraid of Yeah. Okay, yeah, I think that's a great question in, in that – you know, domestic violence impacts not just the individuals being abused, but everybody who's witnessing, community members, bystanders, everyone, a community. And that's why what we do at Connect is really look at community responses and developing community strategies of dealing with domestic violence. Because once it happens, once someone hears about it, um, you know, that, that child who witnesses domestic violence, like we talked about earlier, goes to school, acts out in school, or makes poor choices in the community. Um, the, the, the victim survivor doesn't have the, the right resources available to them, language, culturally, um, you know, all those things. So she's further impacted by the abuse um, and can't work or, or loses their job because of the abuse. Um, even, even a batterer is, uh, you know, impacted by his own behavior in terms of, you know, giving, you know, giving himself a false sense of um, power. And then when he goes away and if the criminal justice system is involved and they lose that power um, and they blame the victim for their abuse. Um, and then, you know, the next door neighbor and then people in your building or on that, on that block, 
everyone knows this is happening. And one thing that we do at Connect, we have a legal helpline uh, where we where people, survivors can call in, and then also family members can really help them develop strategies. And we work with communities and faith communities in particular to help them develop strategies of how can you keep Quentin, the survivors safe and also engage. Quentin, we got to stop you here. That's, that's towards the end. We don't want everybody to get too much. Okay, but you know, but you know, so it's really the everyone is impacted by it. It's not just a single isolated issue. And sometimes we get fooled by that in terms of the term domestic. It's private. It's at home, but it has a real public impact. So um, you know, the workplace is impacted. It's you know, everyone is impacted by it. It's not just that person, but really, you know, and, it's, and we always, and like I said, we always forget about the children and what their needs are and how they really understanding what's happening. And children are very resilient. You know, you can be upset with them. You can, um, you know, yell and scream at them, and in five minutes they're in your lap, playing in your lap. But we have to really kind of think about what what, what messages are we sending young, young children uh, when they're in a home where the domestic violence exists. And even animals, you know, like animals are really important too because someone who abuses animals, that's a a great indicator of abuse happening in the home. So, so sometimes you see a little child kick the cat or, you know, yell and scream at the cat, and they're really mimicking the behavior they're seeing in the home. So it's, it's a multifactorial um, impact in terms of just single incidents of domestic violence. It has a huge impact on communities and families because families really don't know what to do. And particularly if you're in a family where this is a cycle and this is another generation where it's happening, one, it is become normalized, or you just become traumatized, so you really don't know what to do with it, and that's one of the things that we're trying to really teach people. One, deal with the, the incident, the crisis, but then also it's like meeting someone and helping a family with the crisis and then also, also at the same, in the same breath teaching them how to change, and the process for change is much longer than dealing with the immediate crisis. So it, it's a lot of things that are taking shape, a lot of dynamics that are going on as this happens. You know, one of the things, Quentin, I wanted to go on because uh, Jay and I do want to go into it with you, and we're not going to try to keep you too much longer. But, you know, there are a lot of people who are dealing with mental illness, okay? And, uh, and, and some of them have been accused of being the abusers in a marriage. Do you encounter that the people who have abused some of their wives or wives or husbands also have some issue of mental illness, you know, whether it's bipolar, whether it's clinical depression, you know, have you encountered some of that? Yeah, but to, to be honest with you, for the, all that does exist. That, you know, someone with mental illness can have those issues. But then also people with mental illness can also decipher who to abuse again. So it's always like, um, yes. and from my experience, <laughs> we, we come from this as being a learned behavior that's supported by environment and societies and structures, right? And it has a lot to do with how men are raised, socialized, and how we view different forms of masculinity. Um, so, and we also come from this premise that it's learned and it's also a choice. So the choice to abuse and the choice to being abused is two different things. So um, so mo- most of it is I've worked on batteries programs for men that are abusive in their relationships for several years. And I've maybe experienced maybe 2% of the men of, out of hundreds of men had true mental health issues or true anger issues. But for the most part, it's really about the power and control um, making the decision to abuse um, their partner who they feel that they can control and have a right to control. Um, so uh, for a very small percentage of it, it is an actual 
um, mental health issues. So, again, always a little formula that I use is who is the person abusing and what is the consequence to them abusing that person. So if I'm abusing my girlfriend and I'm abusing in the right way, there could be potentially no consequence on the short term because I'm abusing her. But if I abuse my boss or my co my my colleague, the consequence for me abusing them is I lose my job. A paycheck doesn't come in. So I'm being really deliberate around. I'm not going to mess up my um, my my bank account. So I'm going to make a decision I'm not going to abuse, even if I'm upset or angry at that person. But I'll take that out on my uh, the person who's closest to me in my relationship. So that's any, so if it's, so if it's truly a mental health issue, you're abusing everyone without discretion, with no real choice around who you, who you, who, who you decide to, who, who, be, who ends up being abused, and just around anger as well. If I'm, I'm being really clear, I'm, I'm going to stop being abusive when the cop comes or if my boss steps in the room, then I'm clear. I'm, I'm, I'm really managing my anger, and, you know, it's not a mental health issue because um, I decide I'm not going to do that. But to my loved one or the person I'm intimate with, I'm going to be abusive. Then that's about power and control. That's about me making a decision I'm going to abuse that person because and I, and I know I can get away with it or I could threaten them to not get the help that they and now, need to get now away. Clinton, now, Clinton, I have to ask you a question here because I've dealt with it from things I've seen personally with family members, and sometimes, like you said, the person who abuses, they know what they're doing. They just may not have any control over it, but they know who to abuse and who not to. That's something you said, and it's, and it's a very true, it's a known fact. So if they are knowing who to abuse, like they know not to do it to their boss because that's where they get paid, but they know when I get home, you know, they take that anger from maybe at work and take it out on their wives or, or their hus- or their kids on a daily basis. Children. You know, yeah, isn't that, you know, can't that also be that they, can, you know, they do need support, like they suffer from depression and, or whatever, and this is the way it acts out? I mean, can that also yeah, I mean, be a part of it? Again, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Some people have depression issues. And the thing about it, and another thing too, right, is like, you know, and I work primarily with black and Latino, poor people, people of color, and in some cases, you know, some, some um white men who are more affluent and have other resources. But one thing that's, that always stands out and is consistent is that, um, that uh, what was my point? I'm sorry. Um, is that, you know, going back again to this, to this choice piece, right, and I'm, making, I'm really being delivered around who I do that. So that doesn't necessarily make it, um, you know, a one-size-fits-all. Some people do have depression issues, and, that, you know, the women in our lives have depression issues as well, but they don't abuse us at the same levels as we abuse them. So a lot of times we like to say, you know, it's about depression, it's mental health, or that's an anger issue, because we need something to rationalize what we're doing and then why we're receiving this form of abuse, because it makes it easy for us to kind of manage it. But in reality, it's not, you know, it, for some people, yeah, you know, some, some men who are abusive do have um, depressing issues, and so do the survivors that they abuse, and they created that for them. They broke down their self-esteem. They made them feel less about their, you know, their value and their worth or, you know, really make them think that they were going crazy by doing mind games and psychological and mental forms of abuse. So there's a lot of things in it um, that we can always, you know, point to, but, it's, again, it's not a one-size-fits-all, and, you know, abuse looks differently and abusers look differently in terms of their tactics, depending on who they're with and, um, you know, how they view violence. So, you know, because I've worked with men that have never been physically violent or sexually violent, but have, you know, isolated 
their wives from their families where they have no support network, don't allow them to work, you know, make sure that they stay pregnant, or, um, you know, many other different things. You know, you, you, you know, I make all the major decisions, but, you know, or I give you an allowance. You know, so, so many different tactics that can be used. Um, so it's not necessarily the traditional, you know, physical black eye, and, and that's what it is, you know. So some, some people are very sophisticated, manipulate in different ways where you never have to raise your hand or use a weapon against someone. Um, or it may just be that. Or, or the alcohol, you know, alcohol is another thing that people call it, always draw to. It can exacerbate the violence, but it's not necessarily why the violence happens, you know. So it can, you know, bring out another form of violence. I'm verbally abusive when, when I'm sober, but then when I'm under the influence, I become... Um, physically abusive, so it exacerbates the violence. Doesn't necessarily it's not the cause of the violence. So there's a lot of factors that um, it's interrelated, and there's a lot of intersecting issues around it. And like you know, women who are you know folks who are undocumented, there's a whole other layer of abuse in shape because you need me to stay in this country, so I can exert other forms and other layers of abuse on you because you need me in that way. So or I can threaten wow. to call. ACS or child welfare on you. So there's a lot of other manipulating things that can be used to um, abuse someone. Well, Jay, I know you had some questions for him. Yes, I do. Um, I want to ask you, um, is domestic abuse, is it a virus or is it in your DNA or is it something that in your family uh, is, taught, is taught by your family? How do these uh, people get to be uh, domestic abusers? Uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, it's a learned behavior. You know, I don't, I don't like to prescribe to the, to the notion that, you know, um, and this is always applied to men of color in particular, that men of color or, you know, it's just violent, being violent, they have violent genes, it's in their DNA, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pathology, you know, it's all these different things. Um, and we also say that about men as well. You know, men, you know, they just don't know how to control themselves. This is how they are. Uh, but it's not. It's a learned behavior. We live in a very violent society. We live in very violent communities where it's about, ultimately, when you look and dig deep, it's about power control, right? Someone is in a position of power, someone is not. They're going to maintain that power control by any means necessary by using different forms and tactics, right? So some of it is about the, the physical violence in homes and communities and workplaces, but then some of it is about the structural dynamic that kind of keeps the status quo in order. Um, so it's really about, you know, really digging a little bit deep around is it just people are just inherently that way and it is not that way. So because, you know, any, anyone can be violent in a, in, a, in a household. And, you know, we live in a very violent country, so there's violence that happens all around us. But it's just how do we internalize that? How do we shape that? How do we try to interrupt these cycles of violence and really put a, a really critical eye and perspective on what is this violence about? Why does, it, why does it impact my people more than it impacts other people? So that might be about resources. That might be about your socioeconomic status. Uh-huh. Or it's very clear that's about race. So. That's interesting. It's interesting, Gail. He talked about the economic situation because economics plays a role too, right, Quentin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Quentin. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, um, 
please finish that statement because we want to go right into the boys and you know right into how men and boys can make All a difference. Right. So what, what what so what I was going to say about that is you know and that's another misconception because when we hear it on the news or see it in the newspapers or even see it in movies, it's really a lot of it is really black and brown people who are being violent, being abusive, or being abused. So and that's really about you know the so you know the the, the sensationalism. And it's about the structural systems and industries and what have you. Because, you know, violence against women is very profitable, you know, in a monetary sense and also in an emotional sense. And violence against poor people and people of color is very profitable in the same way. See, if you talk about power control and controlling and objectification and, and you know, looking at people's property and ownership. So it's, it's really important that we understand that there's a misconception that wherever there's poverty, there's domestic violence or intimate partner violence. But I beg to say that wherever there's domestic violence, that creates poverty as well. So it's a causational impact. It's not, it's not just that because somebody's struggling with a livable wage or it's not working right now, so I have license to be violent. But I think that the domestic violence, if you look how what, what happens and destroys families, you know, someone leaves the house, someone can no longer work, you know, you can't really take care of my kids because I'm in a shelter, I have to be uprooted, all of those different things. There's no child care, there's no, you know, access to um, Head Start, you know, whatever it may be, all of that creates poverty. So it's a causational and, you know, um, uh, relationship. Wow. Well, you know, wow. um, Jay, I, it, it is. And one thing I want to go into, I mean, Quentin, I know we've kept you for a while. Can we keep you just a little bit longer? Sure. Okay. One of the things that, you know, I have two questions, but I want to go right into the men and the boys and how they can make a difference in the community. There's something that you hit on. You know, often when a woman is dealing with the abuse in the household, like you said, she could be a judge, she could be a businesswoman or anything, and that guy could be doing very well, her husband. But then she walks out into the street and she attracts arguments. I've often said, and this is, again, firsthand experience with family members, you know, they will attract the negativity to them because that place where they're not being validated and honored, they actually, because they don't have, they're not equipped to deal with that in their other relationships, will begin to attract that and interact with that in other relationships. That is yeah, also you know, and, and that's, yeah, and, and, and you know, and that's why it's important too, because you know that that's a uh, another thing that comes up a lot of times. You know, she just you know she goes from one abusive relationship to the next abusive relationship or just kind of tracks this type of person. And um, and this is why, you know, one thing that we said it was important that we engage men and boys because that's the missing factor. You know, when I first started doing this work, it was around, it's really about the survivor, sometimes the children, but we're not really addressing the, the guy who's doing the abuse. So we're not working with men. We're not working with boys. We're not changing attitudes and belief systems, so it's not like we're putting this onus for she's getting herself in that situation or she's drawing this negative attention. We're not really putting any account, no accountability for the person that's doing the abuse. There's no process that they're in. It might be just one, you know, just throw them in jail, and there's no programs in jail, so they just harbor resentment and hate, and when they get out, they're even more abusive in that situation. Um, So it's really about really engaging men and boys at multiple levels, you know, prevention, that's what we that's our what's our main charge to really prevent violence. And prevention looks really different in New York City because there's not too many places where there is no violence to prevent from happening. So part of it is working with youth and that's important, but then working with the the adults in their lives and particularly the men in their lives because there's a misconception that, 
young people and black boys and Latino boys don't have male presence, it's like what type of male presence do they have? Because if the, you know what, if the negative you know behavior is the most consistent behavior, then that's going to outweigh any positive behavior that they may come across. This is true. But I, what, I, want to, I want to go there, but I want to go back to that woman because when the woman is in the house and she's arguing with her husband, you know, because another part of abuse can be excessive arguing to keep her down, to keep her not focused or concentrated. When the woman walks out of her house to go into the, to the city or go into her job, she finds herself having not great relationships where people at work, people and socially, people in her family are honoring her because she's also not being honored at home. I find the environment at home plays a big part in how a woman is treated with her colleagues, with other people around her because she's bringing that I'm not good enough self-esteem issue to everywhere yeah. she goes until she deals with it. Yeah, yeah and, that's, and that's one, um, you know, consequence of abuses. You know, you, you could, like you said, it could be uh, a, a president of a multinational corporation, and, you know, and, but that person is systematically esteem and value and worth is broken down, you know, so it's, and, and that's the other residual effect of, you know, abuse in a home, it shows up at work, you know, your ability to focus, your ability to do your job, or even keep your job is impacted. Your ability to parent, right? So a lot of times um, women who are abused, they're, you know, held responsible for what's happening with their children. So the fact that they're being abused, their ability to parent is being undermined. So we're not even looking at it that way. You're just looking at, oh, this, this mother's not taking care of this child. The kid looks all disheveled and clothes are dirty, hair is not um, combed. Um, so it may look like that in terms of impact on the parenting or in their workplace or with their other family members because, one, there's also shame connected to this, and one, they're not being believed, or when they are telling their stories, they're being blamed for it rather than saying, why does he do what he does in terms of the abuse, but saying, well, why do you stay? Why do you put up with that? You know, not even realizing that she might be threatened if she leaves or, you know, some other form. There's many reasons why, you know, people stay in these situations, but we have to kind of really examine what is happening to them and what are the obstacles to leaving those situations and then develop the support and the consistent support around that and not really helping someone or supporting someone on our own schedule, you know, because we're seeing things that they don't see and then we recreate the dynamic of the abuse that they're receiving because they're not doing the things that we want them to do in a way we want them to do that because that's what they're already leaving. So it's really about supporting but most importantly empowering empowering. Um, survivors to really be in a position where they can really leave. Because some people leave immediately. Some people leave seven, eight times before they leave. Some people don't leave at all. And they think, you know, um, because of cultural reasons, or it could be that they love the person, they just want the abuse to stop. Or because they have children, and they want, and we're socialized that, you know, you having two parents is the most ideal thing. Or, you know, so all, the, all of these things that we learn culturally and traditionally that make, you know, it very difficult to leave an abusive situation, particularly if we're not supporting survivors in the right way. We're not getting the batterers the help that they need or, you know, or you're making sure that, you know, they're in a process so that the women and children are safe in the cases where it's men abusing women. So it's all of these things have to be in play. Well, you know, okay. one of the things, um, I have one last question, and I think Jay has a few left, and that, that'll be it. Um, my one last question is a myriad of all. It's like, how do we get men and boys to be a part of the process to eradicate, you know, what is going on with domestic violence? And inside of that, I know you do a lot of work 
with a lot of different ethnic groups inside of this with young boys and and men. And, you know, so how do we get them to be a part of the process and, 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 have, and engage them in the community? And, and, and Jay, that will be my last question because I know you have a few. I mean, there's many different ways. It depends on the community. It depends on the, the type of men we're talking about, you know, their backgrounds, the languages they speak. All of these things are factors, right? But the, the thing about it is that we have to engage in terms of, you know, like when we first started at Connect, we were um, – you know, figuring out, you know, we did research and people said, you know, men want, should be part of this and, and men that we spoke to said, you know, what is happening is, is, is terrible. But when we're in a group of other, a cohort of other men, you know, it's very difficult for me to say to the other guys, I'm worried about what they're going to say about me, saying, you know, don't talk to that woman that way, don't harass them, don't say things like that, don't harm them, that you'll become victimized by stepping up. So part of it is one is one, educating people about, domestic violence, the impact of it, and that it really shows up differently for different people. And if you think, talk to someone, nobody's really for domestic violence per se, but we have to teach communities how to recognize it, be creative around how they engage, meet men where they are. So I was doing work at barbershops because, you know, I was socialized in the barbershop growing up. My mom would take me and my brother to Jerry's Den, and we would get haircuts. And then, you know, the men in the barbershop would give us a certain narrative about who we are as black men, black young men, who, you know, women of color were and what was on the TV screen, what posters they had up in the, in the barbershop. So all that stuff was a socializing impact. So really it's about, you know, challenging some of that in a way that's safe for the person who's engaging, but not also not cater to it, but also meet them where they are and at the same time hold that person accountable and develop ways of having these conversations and then also really looking at one thing I do, too, at Connect is we have um, men's roundtables. So that's not necessarily a batters program, but it's a way for men who are dealing with domestic violence in their work or in their lives to come together. And we have certain themes that we talk about every month, making it creative. We talk about music. We talk about, you know, violence. We talk about men's health and wellness, you know, all these different things. And we really use creative techniques of really engaging men in different types of conversations because we do talk. But what are we talking about? How are we seeing how this impacts us? And then, you know, of course, engaging youth, but youth by themselves um, don't have a lot of power because, you know, everything that I, like I said, and we, I work with youth all the time and to this day, and my staff does, and, you know, my staff member Marlon, he's working in, in high schools and middle schools every single day, really engaging men and, men and boys in dialogue. It's really about giving them a space to speak and, and then moving them where we want them to go and become activists and allies, you know, in this work with men and women, with women and girls to really interrupt these cycles of violence. And that's what we're doing at Connect in terms of Sally and I being co-leaders of this as a black male and a white woman and a male and a female and, you know, really looking at all these intersections that we exist every single day and that it's going to take, you know, communities to really step up and do this. And it's going to be about engaging men and really seeing that domestic violence is a community issue, yes, but it also has a lot to do with male violence. And that domestic violence is really a men's issue that women have to react to from our behavior. So you think about domestic violence as a women's issue, it's really a men's issue. It's really a community issue. Janet, you had some questions. Yeah, one of the things I have, does uh, Connect provide a safe haven for these abusive, uh, um, some of the women that have been abused? Is there a safe haven that you guys have resources where they can come and just chill out for a minute and, and talk to you guys about 
Uh, well, I mean, we 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 have um, most of our work is about training and um, prevention work, but we do have one deser- uh, direct service component, which is our legal program. You know, we have a legacy, legal advocacy program, and if I can mention that number, that's two one two six eight three zero six zero five, and that's a resource for you know people who are struggling with domestic violence and navigating legal systems, what have you. And you know, yeah, I mean, people come and we speak to people on the phone and things like that, but we don't provide shelter service. And all the entire staff, all 10 or 11 of us, we all have, you know, extensive uh, amount of experience, um, you know, for many of us 10, 10 years and more that are on staff, so very experienced people that know how to speak to people. Because part of it is about, you know, you, you're identified and you're clear victim, survivor of domestic violence, and then sometimes we, we train people, and then they, then they, for the first time, realize that they were victims of domestic violence. Because ah. the definition is expanded for them, so I mean, you know, people are, uh, you know, dealing with this and being triggered, and you know, dealing with trauma, putting, storing things, suppressing things. So you know, many of us are, you know, victims of trauma and violence. We either bystanders, perpetrators, or um, victim survivors of it, or maybe all three. So it's not so private in a certain issue. So we, and so through our legal program, and we all have resources with other community-based organizations and domestic violence organizations where we can give people into shelters or get the respite that they need to kind of, you know, manage what's happening until they're ready to leave and be safe. So there's, we have multiple community partners, and we're, you know, allies with other community community-based and domestic violence organizations throughout New York City. So there's plenty of resources. It's really about finding the appropriate and the most effective resource for that particular person or that family. And that, my last question, Gail, and I was wondering uh, how did you feel about this too, Gail? I have a friend, and she tends she has a, what she has is a, a problem where she continues to pick the wrong guy. And um, basically that's what the, her problem is. What do I tell her? She continues to have bad luck. She picks the wrong guy. She she picks the wrong guy, um, and usually he's a violent character. And then she continues to she leaves that person, and she does the same thing. Pick 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 the wrong person again. Is there some type of advice you can give that person that's picking the wrong person in their life? I mean, you know, that's that's yeah, that's a tough thing. I think we addressed that a little bit earlier as well, and in another form that you know, because one thing that's the only thing that's consistent about that is her, and she's being abused. And it's not like you know someone. Um, wants to be abused in that situation, you know what I mean? It's like, so this is why I feel it's so important to work with men because then it's like, well, let's create, a, you know, a lack of a better word, cadre of men or uh, groups of men that have, you know, really changed the attitudes and belief systems so when, you know, women who are in previous uh, abusive relationships can go into a relationship where that's not to be expected, you know, or, that 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 man decides not to be abusive in that. So it's really about you know one, help, you know helping survivors in a way and not blaming them if they move into another relationship where there's violence. But there's also trauma, you know, and there's also normalizing, um, you know, gender roles and you know how men are supposed to act in a relationship and how women are supposed to act in a relationship, particularly if you come from household where, you know, there's cycles of and generations of violence. So, I mean, a lot of it has to do with that. But that's why it's so critical that we engage men and boys. So we're not just saying, you know, she's picking the wrong guy, you know. So so basically when we do that, we end up, we blame her. So we got to really be careful about that and not really putting 
even if you know somebody's in an abusive relationship three or four times, it's not their fault that they want to. They don't want to be abused. They, you know, they just um, they get into a situation, and we got to put start on on this accountability on the person who's doing the abuse. So, I mean, it's a tough question to answer, and it's not a one size fits all. But yeah. And, you know, so, that, and Quentin, we want to thank you for being on. I just want to say one thing about that, Jay. You asked me what I thought. As someone who's dealt with it uh, through family members personally, I can honestly tell you that the woman also, once she's been helped that first time, it's important that she also seeks support and help, like Quentin says, but also seeks support to look in her family chain and look at herself, and, and, and not herself as she did something wrong, but to heal herself. Because, you know, once you get healed, that's where the spiritual component comes in, whatever you believe in. Once you're healed, it helps. One of the things that Quentin is aware of is something called art of living. It does a lot of meditation and breathing techniques. It allows you to connect with yourself. You know, and that's what we don't have time to go into. But there's another component to that. And, Quentin, I want to just thank you. I know this is your birthday, and you, we are really uh, honored that you spent this time with us. We have two questions that really don't have anything to do with this. We want to know what you love about your life in one sentence, and what's important to you, Quentin Walcott? What's important to you? I mean, both questions, really, uh, you know, family, friends, and um, colleagues, you know, people that, um, you know, I'm in communion with and I like to, you know, surround myself with, you know, and, um, you know, I'm a very, you know, caring and loyal and committed person. I try to do everything I do is... I mean, I really do everything like it's the last time I'm going to do it, so I'm going to put myself in it, you know, be passionate about it, um, and really, you know, um, give my all. So I, I do that to my to my close-knit circles and people I work with, you know, developing that trust. So I think it's really about, you know, and then also being in process, you know what I mean, really, um, you know, holding each other accountable, and that's important of what we do here at Connect, particularly in this leadership role that I'm in with Sally as male-female leaders of this type of work in this organization. Um, so it's really about, you know, communion, being in process, you know, communicating, you know, really studying and really being creative around the work and being around those type of people as well. So my staff is very creative, and, you know, I respect them. They respect me, and we really dig in and do do the work on in the community and on a policy level, you know, multiple ways of really doing this work. So that's important to me, really being um, in the trenches with people that I trust and respect and that trust and respect me. Well, I want to thank you, um, Quentin, um, and I want to thank Jay. I mean, I'm almost brought to tears because I feel like that I'm in the midst of two men who really make a difference in everything they do, and I thank you for just, you know, it's privileged to know you as men. You both are amazing men, and um, uh, I'm going to close the show on that. Um, and just thank you, Quentin. And it really has meant a lot to me personally because we have honored you before and through our conversations that you were on our show today. You'll never know how much it meant um, to yeah. me personally and to Jay as well. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I just want to say one thing. Our website is connectnyc.org. You know, visit our website. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. And right now, you know, organizations like Connect are always in a struggle to stay alive. So if you all feel in your heart to donate to our organization, to this cause, please do so. Thank you. Well, we wanted to let you know, Quentin, that um, as of today, Listen Give, what Listen Give does, and I shared that with you earlier, is we connect nonprofit organizations. We connect and partner out with them. 
And what we do is we help to make sure that you gain the funding that you need. We don't fundraise. We make sure that the funding gets to you. So we will be partnering up. If Connect will accept us, we will be partnering up with you as a partner, and we will make sure and connect with you to make sure that Connect does receive the funding it needs. Great. Thank you very much. All right, guys. Thank you. And uh, as I say again, thank you, Jim. You too. And have a good birthday, uh, Quentin. Thank you. I appreciate that. Bye-bye.